Do you want to know what Cloud Griffin has in common with Little Red Riding Hood? Or do you want to know what Greek goddess you can best compare her to? Welcome to Earth Skills, a podcast about the television series The Hundred. Today we're going to answer the question whether The Hundred is a fairy tale. Maybe you've noticed that the sizzle reel for season 5 that came out in July was full of references to fairy tales. Once upon a time, there was a castle in the sky. There was talk about monsters. Then, the monsters came out. And of a beautiful female protagonist. The greatest and fairest of them all. I was intrigued. And when I looked back, I noticed that the first four seasons of The Hundred have borrowed heavily from fairy tale imagery. There's the forest, which reminds us of tales like Little Red Riding Hood and Snow White, and Mount Weather reads like a science fiction underworld. I think these references are there for a reason, and this episode will explain the relationship between the dystopian genre and fairy tale tropes. Are you curious yet? Before we begin though, I'll introduce myself. My name is Anaïs, I live in Belgium, I am a historian, and some of you may know me from my Tumblr blog, which is insufficientearthskills.tumblr.com, where I blog about character analysis, symbolism, etymology, and other things. In this season of the Earth Skills podcast, I will look at how the themes of the show relate to gender. For example, in the first two episodes, I'll talk about Clark and her character journey, and how it fits or doesn't fit with the contemporary female protagonists in the dystopian genre. But what is gender, and why would we want to study it? I think it's time for a trip to the library. The definition of gender I like to use is one from American historian Joan Wallach Scott, who specializes in the history of France, intellectual history and gender history. It's a two-part definition. She says, gender is a constitutive element of social relationships based on perceived differences between the sexes. And gender is a primary way of signifying relationships of power. Let's unpack. The first part, gender as a constitutive element of social relationships, means that our culture has formed a definition of man and woman, and that most of us kind of adhere to that definition up to the point where many people believe that our behaviors as men and women are natural instead of learned. In our culture, the Western culture, that means that men are seen as rational, whereas women are emotional. Men are active, women are passive. Men are competitive, while women are caring. Men are also associated with the public sphere and with producing culture, while women are linked to the private sphere and seen as closer to nature. You see that these characteristics are always posed in contrast to one another. You can only be one or the other, not both. These opposed ideas of what it means to be male and female play a role in the second part of the definition, gender as a primary way of signifying relationships of power. Our culture, again the Western culture, values certain characteristics more, as you could have guessed, the ones that are associated with men and masculinity. So to summarize, a gendered analysis of a piece of culture, like a television series, a book, a film, even music, makes it possible to make statements about stereotypes, prejudices and power balances that exist both in the thing we study 
as well as in the society that produces it. To make sense about gender roles on the hundred and the link with fairy tales, we need to gather some more information. Almost 10 years ago, The Hunger Games marked the start of a new wave of popularity for the dystopian genre. But dystopian stories have been popular for at least a hundred years. So why this sudden upsurge now? Scholars have found that dystopian stories are popular at times when society is going through fundamental changes. In the late 19th century, when the genre originated, there was a feeling of chaos due to the rise of industrial technology, which enabled the production of unforeseen quantities of products. Not only that, the impressive steam-driven machines themselves were unlike anything what people were used to. Technological innovations like this brought about so many societal changes in economics, culture and even religion and philosophy that people unconsciously feared they wouldn't be able to control the consequences. Or, in contrast, that people would use technology to try and control others. We see the same thing in the genre after the Second World War, when Huxley's book A Brave New World offered a criticism of the mass production of goods, which was made possible by wartime technology. Is it important to know what themes dystopian stories have touched upon? Yes, because this way we understand that writing and reading stories about the negative effects of science and technology allows us to distance ourselves from our fears because we're treating them as fiction. At the same time, particularly because many dystopian stories are set in the future, they urge us to think about what kind of society we do want to build The current peak of the genre has a mix of all those themes – technology and the fear of technology like artificial intelligence, totalitarian regimes, fears of terrorism and climate change, as well as philosophical questions. But there's one new element that has not been part of the genre for long, and that is the use of fairy tale tropes. Especially in stories with a female protagonist. According to Jill Cost, the use of fairy tale tropes emphasizes that the story is fictional and firmly creates a distance between the audience and the story. Cost has studied two novels, Cinder by Marisa Meyer, which is a retelling of Cinderella, and Wither by Lauren Di Stefano, which is based on Bluebeard. Both protagonists show similarities with the original tale's heroines, Cinderella and Bluebeard's wife. But Both stories also deviate from the traditional fairy tale ending. The fairy tale tropes are only used in as far as they serve the dystopian narrative. Cost says that fairy tales are a stabilizing factor, a reminder of our childhood. This makes it easier to process the issues presented in the story. That way, fiction allows us to channel fears about huge technological shifts in a way that is not too obvious, because the themes and events in the story are outside of our everyday existence. Another remarkable thing about the combination of dystopian stories and fairy tales 
is that they seem to have opposite goals as a genre. While dystopian stories offer opportunities for social criticism, fairy tales are often seen as traditional, even conservative. According to Jack Zipes, an American fairy tale specialist and folklorist, ever since the 17th century, fairy tales were meant to perpetuate patriarchal ideas about femininity and masculinity. Tales with female protagonists were often meant to teach young women to be docile, patient, caring and family-oriented. So far, there is not much feminist about fairy tales, right? That changed in the 70s of the 20th century with feminist literary criticism. The sexist basis of fairy tales came to light and people started to rewrite them to include a more women-friendly plot. Because fairy tales have their roots in oral tradition, they're really great for retellings. Retellings use the core and the structure of the story and adapt some other parts to fit new ideas that emerge in society, for example the feminist movement in the 20th century. That way, a story can present traditional gender roles while at the same time criticize them. And with this we conclude our library segment. On the hundred, Clark is the protagonist of her own fairy tale. We all know Clark's nickname on the Ark was Princess because of her privileged position in the Ark society. But aside from her nickname, Clark's hair also reflects the princess persona. She's blonde, which represents innocence, and she wears it in a hairdo that looks like a halo or a crown. In fairy tales with the princess as protagonist, the story follows a certain pattern. We have certain expectations for what she's going to do, for the characters she'll meet and for the places she'll visit. I found Clark's character arc follows the narrative structure of a fairy tale. Especially in seasons 2 and 3, she travels to places that would fit right into old myths and folk tales. Mount Weather, for example, represents the underworld. And the forest in which Clark lives at the beginning of season 3 is a recurring trope in fairy tales. Mount Weather plays a pivotal role in Clark's character arc. She is kidnapped and brought there with the other delinquents, but then she escapes when she learns that their hosts are sci-fi vampires. She only goes back in for a short time, at least compared to Bellamy and the others, but killing the inhabitants of Mount Weather has a lasting effect on her. The female protagonist who enters the underworld meets death and comes back to the surface of the earth is an ancient story concept. We all know Persephone, who was sucked into the earth when the ground split while she was picking flowers. She was then saved by her mother Demeter, the goddess of agriculture and the harvest, and was allowed to go back above ground. But, since she ate six pomegranate seeds, she had to return after six months to spend half of the year in the underworld. Valerie Estelle Frankel is a pop culture specialist who has written books such as Katniss the Cattail, an unauthorized guide to names and symbols in the Hunger Games, and Women in Game of Thrones, Power, Conformity and Resistance. She's also written a book called From Girl to Goddess, The Heroine's Journey in Myth and Legend. In it she writes that caves and underground spaces are symbolically linked to the uterus and therefore to femininity. Spaces like caves were seen as mysterious and spiritual because they were hidden. 
Also mysterious was the uterus, because in an age of little knowledge of the inner workings of the body, people didn't really know what happened in there when a baby grew. People even organized feasts around Persephone and held rituals in which they enter a cave and come back out as a rite of passage for young girls. Anyway, literary critics have agreed that the dangers the protagonist encounters in the underworld symbolized their unconscious fears and desires. In Clark's case, she meets President Dante Wallace, who represents the kind of leader Clark could become if she went too far. In many stories, the heroine also enters the underworld to rescue loved ones from imprisonment. This is exactly what Clark's whole story arc revolves around in season 2. According to Frankel, Demeter's failed attempt to fully recover her daughter Persephone from the depths of the underworld also has a symbolic meaning. Every young girl undergoes a maturation from girl to woman. And stories, like myths, were told to make it easier to talk about this. In ancient mythology as well as traditional fairy tales, the mother figure is often the one that holds the girl back from becoming an adult. She feels jealous of the girl's youth and sexual innocence and tries to stop her becoming an adult, consciously or not. Growing up and learning isn't always easy, is what these kinds of stories want to tell us. In the hundred we see something similar. The problem Abby has with Clark isn't her sexual maturation, of course, but her gaining of political leadership. Abby is Chancellor of Arcadia in season 2, but in contact with the Grounders and the Mountain Men, Clark assumes the role of leader. Abby doesn't like this, and Clark actively rebels against her. Stop! You may be the Chancellor, but I'm in charge. They butt heads about what to do in war, and whether sacrificing the lives of innocent people is worth it if they win the war in the end. After Clark let the bomb drop on Tom DC, Abby tells her to remember that they are the good guys. And it's only after Clark pulled the lever in Mount Weather, saving the Sky People, that Abby realizes that maybe there are no good guys. The daughter taught a lesson to her mother, instead of the other way around. The mother-daughter conflict is a trope that carries over from ancient mythology to fairy tales. In this genre, the forest has the same symbolic meaning as the underworld in mythology. Frankel says that in stories the forest represents the dangerous side of the unconscious. It's a deep and dark, hidden place, or at least a place where other things are hidden, and this reflects the inner turmoil of a girl on the brink of womanhood. Fairy tale heroines like Little Red Riding Hood and Snow White enter the forest on the run with their mothers. In Snow White's case, that's quite obvious. Her evil stepmother has ordered a hunter to kill her. But the hunter doesn't want to. I'll run! Run away! Hide! In the woods! Anywhere! And Snow White roams in the forest for a while. In the Disney animated version, the forest is not merely alive, but downright attacks her. In the end, she finds safety with the seven dwarfs, who are not incidentally miners who live in a cave. In this cave, she learns the traditional skills a woman should know before she is ready to move out of her parents' house and start her own family. Cleaning, cooking and caretaking. Little Red Riding Hood experiences things a little differently. The mother figures in this story only in that she is absent. 
or is she? Traditional interpretations say that because the mother is gone, the girl can act on her unconscious desire and be seduced by the wolf. But Peter Arns offers a different interpretation. He says that the wolf actually represents the mother, who is crushed between the two other generations, the grandmother and the young girl. According to some critical fairy tale analysts, the evil mother or stepmother is actually the one character who rebels against the expectations of passivity and submission that were imposed on women. In fairy tales, that makes them the villain. To make matters even more intriguing, all the other characters in fairy tales are often a personification of the protagonist themselves. In this case, the mother figure represents what the girl should not become. The Hundred makes use of these symbols and tropes in a very subtle way. Clark roams the forest on her own in the beginning of season 3, which is meant to show us her unstable mental state. She's isolated and is dealing with guilt and shame. Or rather, not really dealing with it. She's also dyed her hair red. This recalls Red Riding Hood's well-known red cap or cape. Clark doesn't meet a wolf in the forest, but she is kidnapped by someone whose intentions she doesn't know at first. Rowan. Meeting him and being brought to Lexa in Polis is the start of her season 3 character arc, coming to terms with Lexa's betrayal and her own actions and responsibilities. During this time though, she still keeps her mother at a distance and they only reconcile in episode 316. More on that in the next episode. So we can see that on the hundred, like Jill Cost says, fairy tale tropes are used in as far as they serve the dystopian narrative. While the show offers similarities, callbacks and references to tales and myths, the emphasis of the story is undoubtedly on the dystopian elements. We have to keep in mind that everything I've mentioned, especially the idea that fairy tales are universal initiation stories, is only an interpretation. But it's a very dominant interpretation. It doesn't really matter if caves and forests were seen as representations of the feminine 3000 years ago, because this interpretation has formed the inspiration for so many storytellers right now, who use it as if it were true. The representation of women in media has been a main theme in feminist thinking since the 70s. For a long time, Women in science fiction weren't allowed to be feminine, but were presented as very masculine, muscled, wielding guns, aggressive and competitive. Femininity for those heroines was more often a masquerade to accomplish their goal rather than a part of their core identity. The 21st century dystopian heroines both fit and reject this type of representation. Think about Katniss in The Hunger Games, for example, who is very good at hunting, but also has a softer side. She fights in the Hunger Games, but she also cares a lot for her sister. The use of fairy tale tropes and structures offers a way of playing with the audience's expectations. Not all dystopian heroines enter the underworld, but all of them go through a dark time or a period of soul-searching. They often come face to face with the fragility of life and realize they have a part to play in society, a responsibility to take up. This is exactly what Clark's story arc is about in season 2 and 3. If you want to know more about this, please tune in for the next episode, in which we'll delve into Clark's emotional character journey 
which starts after killing Finn. Thank you for listening.